You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, a new year always excites me. Uh, I'm, I, my wife sometimes will call me the Renaissance man because... Uh, when it comes to the new year, I'm all about, you know, changes and new possibilities and, and that a new year brings maybe a fresh start in some area. I don't know how, how many of you can appreciate a fresh start in some area of your life. Uh, it brings a, uh, some, for some, it brings a clean slate and it kind of, you can wipe the, the slate clean and start over. It, it, it brings new opportunities it, it, for a new year, I get excited about the thought of getting better at something, improving at something, setting a goal and meeting it. I, and maybe not everybody's like that. I'm usually, though, excited about setting goals in all kinds of areas. I mean, um, I've got to set physical goals, which, you know, after the Christmas, Thanksgiving and Christmas season, probably we need to set some physical goals, you know, after eating, probably eating more than we should and enjoying it. But it's time to get back to it. You ever get there at the beginning of a new year? You know, I've got some goals about weight or goals about exercise. Uh, I've got, in my own life, personally, I've got goals, musical goals. I, um, I have, over the course of my, my adult life, I, I've written music, written songs before, and, and uh, it's something that allows me kind of an outlet. I enjoy doing, doing those kinds of things. I know that sounds strange to some of you, but I like to do that. I like to write songs. I like to arrange music. Um, I like to play instruments and, and kind of pick something up and learn it again. It's a good outlet for me. I have those kind of goals. Uh, I, I have financial goals for our family and things that, that we need to do in 2020 for more savings and, or maybe uh, contributing more toward retirement or we've got debt to pay off in, in some area or another. Uh, for myself, I'm just personal improvement. I mean, just this morning, I was, I, I set a goal in how many books I would like to read in 2020. Because if I don't set a goal like that, I don't. I'm not one of those guys that just naturally just finds myself all the time just reading and reading. I've got to set a goal to kind of make myself do that. Um, learning something new. I have spiritual goals. Um, how many of you have set a goal to uh, read through your Bible this year? Okay, just looking around the room. Got a number of hands. I think that's a great thing to do every year. And maybe even if you don't get through all the way through the Bible, as long as you have a plan and you've got every day a plan to, to do some reading. And um, it would be like saying that I don't need to eat every day. I mean, spiritually speaking, that's the Bible calls it. It's the bread of life. We need the bread of life. We need to spiritually eat. Um, we all set these kind of goals. We all have these things that, that we uh, are shooting for and striving for. Maybe you're like that. And maybe you have a New Year's resolution kind of a mindset. You like the idea of a fresh start. You like the idea of a new opportunity. You like the idea of setting and meeting goals in your life. But if you're like me, you, you start to lose a little excitement about it when you look back on your track record. When you look back on all the goals that you set and then you compare it to the goals that you accomplished. I don't know if this, maybe I'm the only one, maybe I'm the exception but far too many times I have set out to do something but was derailed by something else. I didn't, I didn't accomplish what I was hoping to do. And, and one of the reasons it ends up that way for me, and probably for some of you as well, is that I'm trying to do too much all at once. 
I'm trying to change everything all at once. I have uh, personal goals I'm trying to meet. It's like I'm trying to be Zig Ziglar. Anybody know who Zig Ziglar is? And he's that famous uh, motivational speaker, and, and he's trying to always get you to take the next step. And I have physical goals. You know, I'm trying to be LeBron James sometimes. Don't laugh at that. I mean, LeBron James, so he spends $100,000 a year on training, okay? I mean, I, I might buy some new shoes this year for running. I don't know. I have musical goals. I'm trying to be like Mozart, you know, and finish my masterpiece. And I've got financial goals. I'm trying to be like Jeff Bezos and save my next billion dollars. So I've got spiritual goals. I'm trying to be like the Dalai Lama or somebody. I don't know. I, so all I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to be Zig Ziglar and LeBron James and Mozart and Jeff Bezos and the Dalai Lama all at the same time. That's pretty doable, right? I think I could accomplish all that. Baby steps, you know. No, see, I, I say that, and I mean, you're not amused. That's okay. I'm saying it. The problem with that mentality is I'm trying to accomplish so much at once that one of the two things is bound to happen. The first is I won't have the energy or time or resources to do it all, so I'll just end up giving up. Or second, even if I do get it all done, there's no way I can master any of it, so I end up simply being average at everything. One of those two things is bound to happen. If I set out to try to overcome too many things all at once or do too many things all at once, I will find myself giving up because I don't have the energy or time or resources. Or second, even if I get it all done, I won't master any of it. I'll simply be average at everything. And I think what we have to do is get away from the mentality that, that most effective change comes by tackling everything. That most effective change comes by, well, I've got this long list of things that I'm trying to change this year, and I'm going to get it all done. No, the most effective change actually comes when we shorten the list to the most important thing. And you say, well, I don't really see that. Well, we're about to see it from this text. See, we need to get away from the many and settle on the one. We need to define and focus on the one thing. It's usually one thing that will make the single biggest difference in change. And that leads to Mark chapter 10. See, this account of Christ's interaction with the rich young ruler sees this young man who's very eager to turn over a new leaf. He's very eager for change. He wants to see something different in his life. And honestly, I appreciate his desire. I appreciate his zeal. But I want to notice some things about him that reflect a faulty approach to change in our lives. These are traits that can be found in us as well. And the first thing that I, that I see here is that he was, he was excited to get started. Now there, he says in verse 17, it says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one what? What does it say? Are you looking? Let's look again at verse 17. You fill in the word. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. Hey, does that sound to you like he's eager about what he's doing? Yeah, he is. This rich young ruler, he didn't hide his excitement. He comes running up to Jesus, and it says in the next phrase, he came running and kneeled to him. So he comes running. If you can imagine, uh, Jesus Christ has just finished one thing. He's moving to the next thing. It says when he was gone forth into the wave. So he's moving along, and here comes a young man a rich young ruler, and he's running to Jesus. He's not walking, he's not hiding behind the corner, waiting for him to come his way. No, he runs to Jesus, 
and it says that he bows, he kneels before Jesus Christ. He's obviously not hiding his intentions. Um, he, is, he puts on a very public display of emotion and enthusiasm. He's not hiding any of it. He wants, uh, he's okay if everybody sees what he's doing. Uh, which again, I, honestly, I appreciate this. Frankly, I, I think God's people could use some more zeal sometimes. Eastside Baptist Church, I think emotion and excitement and energy are not wrong. Approach God and his work and his people and his church with some excitement. It's not wrong. And sometimes I think we, we allow the, the charismatics or somebody else to kind of steal this mentality from us that you, or to, to kind of make us think that you're not allowed to get excited in church. You're not allowed to have any emotion in church. No, when it comes to serving God, be as zealous and excited and, as, and emotional. Be excited. I mean, come excited. Come anticipating. Uh, it's okay to run to Jesus. But zeal to begin change is not usually our biggest problem, though. See, it, we're normally excited about something new. It's easy to get, isn't it? Uh, it's easy for me. It's easy for me to get excited about something new because we live in a culture of novelty. If you watch a commercial, um, they, they, they send you a message in less than 30 seconds. Movies and video games these days, and I haven't read the statistics recently, but I read I, at some point I was uh, reading about how quickly sh- uh, scenes in a movie or shots in a movie will change from one to the next to the next to the next to keep our interest. It used to be that those scenes would often last minutes at a time with one camera shot. And now it's new scene, new scene, new shot, new scene, and you can hardly even keep up with it. And video games are the same way, just to keep everybody's attention. I mean, everybody, even, uh, you know, everything on TV, everything's flashy, everything is eye-popping. Turn on the news, and it's not just like it used to be with a guy sitting at a desk with his notes, and now there's entertainment, flashy entertainment graphics and And they've got these lead-ins and the music. Everything is new and entertaining, even in the news. So novelty is a part of our culture. We we like the new stuff. Our problem is usually not um, zeal about the new things. We like it. We like change. We're eager to switch things up. And that's our first problem. See, we're often seeking change out of boredom rather than change for what's best. We're often seeking change out of boredom rather than change for what's best. And we need to make sure that our intentions for change are God-pleasing. That he is the one that's prompting us to change. And we don't say, well, I'm bored with this. I'm bored with the same old, same old. So I need something new. Because if you have that mentality when it comes to change, you'll find yourself in trouble, folks. Just to be frank, you'll find yourself in trouble in things like your marriage. See, sometimes... You just have to decide, no, this is what God, God led me here to this point right here. And if I'm always looking for something new, I'll get myself in trouble. Don't seek change just out of boredom. Seek change out of what's best. Seek change out of what God might use in your life to bring you closer to him. And also make sure that you're not seeking change just to impress everybody. Because here's the young man and he's running up to Jesus Christ and he's kneeling before Jesus Christ and he's doing it all publicly and he's probably looking around to make sure who's watching while he does it. I think we see very quickly that his, mo- his zeal was good, but his motive for change was, was not right. Let God determine your changes, not emotion. And here's the first truth that we can see here is that excitement alone isn't enough to experience change. 
Excitement alone is not enough to experience change. Excitement may get you started, but it won't be enough when it gets difficult. You'll need something bigger than emotions when it's no longer new and exciting. And I don't have to spend a lot of time. I think we all understand that. This mentality is also seen in the way he asks the question. See, he comes and he asks for the biggest thing he can think of. He comes and he doesn't come and say, "Um, Jesus, can I please just have, can you just help me with this one little area of my life? No, he comes up to him and he says, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's he's this go for broke kind of a guy. You know, guys like that, you know, people like that, they don't do anything halfway. Everything they do is loud and fast and they're doing all they can. He's clearly not interested in baby steps. He is a big picture, big idea kind of a guy. And I don't fault that. The problem is the biggest changes come from small steps, not giant leaps. The biggest changes come from small steps, not giant leaps. We think, well, if I'm going to accomplish that, I will get from here to there and I'll get it done. But I can't get from here to there in one step. I take a lot of little steps before I can get there. See, most of our decisions for change begin with blind excitement, which is why we tend to overlook the important elements of change. This young man was so blinded by the emotion of the moment and the big idea that he didn't see something very important. And here we lead to the second thing about change in this man's life that we can learn, and that is he overlooked the obstacles. He overlooked the obstacles. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Then he lists off these commandments, adultery, thou shalt not kill, or do not kill, do not steal, bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Now understand, this, so this verse can create some confusion because Jesus says, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God. And there are some that would say that this verse then proves that Jesus Christ is not deity because he's, he's not taking upon himself uh, the title of God, although in many other places in the New Testament, he calls himself God. He calls himself the Son of God. So he's not denying his own deity here. This is not so much about him as it is he's calling him to question the young man's motives. It's not so much about saying, no, don't call me good. I'm not good. Only God's good. No, he's saying, no, why are you calling me good? See the difference? He's really, really calling into question the young man's question. The rich young ruler was obviously, and we'll find it, he's obviously trusting in his own goodness to obtain eternal life. What is the question? Don't miss it. He says, good master, what shall I do? What shall I do? And I'm not going to get into all of this tonight about salvation as much, but he obviously, this young man, obviously believes that he can earn God's favor with his own goodness. He obviously believes that there's something that he can do in his own flesh, in his own body, in his, in his self, in his own strength. He obviously believes that he can trust in his own goodness to gain God's favor. And Jesus Christ is trying to counter that mindset. It's also likely that the man didn't fully understand or believe that Jesus Christ was God. See, we can assume that based on two things. When he comes up to Jesus Christ, he runs up to him, he bows down to him, and he says, good master, or good teacher, is what he's saying. 
So he doesn't say Messiah. He doesn't say Son of God. He calls him basically the same title that, that he would have called a rabbi in his day. He just calls him good teacher. He doesn't come up saying, you are the son of God. Tell me how I can get to heaven. No, he says, good teacher. So there's a chance he doesn't fully understand or believe that Jesus Christ is God. And the second reason that that may be true is we find out a couple verses later that he doesn't follow God's words, Christ's words. He doesn't actually do what Christ said. So he's calling him good here, but he likely doesn't believe in his deity or fully understand who Christ is. He's just kind of throwing the word out there. Good master, good teacher, without considering what it meant. And so when Christ answers, uh, I love the way he kind of turns it around. And he's, the man's talking about goodness. And Jesus Christ turns it around and he confronts the man's goodness to see how good he thinks he is. Because uh, he, he, well, I'll get there. Look at his follow-up in verse 19. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. He reads off a portion of the Ten Commandments. And the man quickly responds in verse 20. This is interesting. He says, and he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. So let's just stop right there and say, do you think he'd kept every one of these commandments? Now, there's a strong chance that uh, he had not committed adultery. I, I, would, I would probably have little doubt that he had killed someone or hadn't killed someone. That he, he says, do not kill. I doubt he had killed someone. He says, do not still. Do you think uh, it's possible for a man to live his life without taking something that doesn't belong to him? It's starting to get a little bit shady in that one because I think probably we're all guilty on some level of taking something that doesn't belong to us. But then you get to the ones that are pretty difficult uh, to justify when, when you know, he says, do not bear false witness. So, I mean, do you, want, you don't have to answer it out loud. Do you really believe this young man had lived his whole life without telling a lie? Do not bear false witness, defraud not. Yeah, do you think this man, this young man, had lived his whole life without cheating someone out of something? Um, honor thy father and mother. Do you honestly think that this young man had lived his whole life without ever dishonoring his parents? I don't know about you. I, I have a lot of doubt about his testimony. Now, what's interesting is I would have started saying, oh, come on. Come on. Thou shalt not, I mean... It says, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Are you telling me that you have never dishonored your parents? Now, I use the Ten Commandments when I take someone through the gospel. I take them to Exodus 20, and I go through the Ten Commandments to try to show them um, their sin. Uh, you know, you can talk about sin, but it, until you go to those commandments very clearly and you start confronting somebody with each of those, it's kind of hard to define but I don't know, I can't remember off the top of my head that I've ever looked at somebody on that commandment that says, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. I don't know or remember that I've ever said that to somebody and said, have you always honored your parents? I can't remember that somebody has ever said, I have always honored my parents. Uh, now, that may, it may be true. It may be that is true. I would have confronted him about it, but you know that Jesus doesn't confront him about it. The Lord doesn't start taking him to task on that statement because the Lord knows his heart. The Lord already knows where he can approach the man and really catch him here. 
See, uh, what the Lord is doing is, well, the rich young ruler, he was ignoring the obstacles of change. See, he comes along and he's excited and he's saying, yeah, I've done all of those things. I'm ready for eternal life. Jesus Christ, tell me what I need to do. I'm ready. But he's not considering his own sin. And he's not considering the fact that in himself are things that will prevent him from change. And by change, I mean eternal life. So what the Lord is doing is he's preparing him for the obstacles. He's pointing out that this young man's sin uh, is, is going to prevent him from becoming what he's supposed to be if it's not dealt with. He's kind of giving him a dose of reality a little bit. It's almost like he's holding a mirror up to the young man so that he can see what he really is. See, we need to approach change through the lens of reality. And you might be excited about change today. And you might have these goals and you have these things that you want to accomplish. But tomorrow morning will likely feel much different. See, reading your Bible, which you know, I was hoping we would have more hands, honestly, of those that say, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to read through my Bible this year. I think that's something everybody ought to do. Whatever your plan is, I think the most important thing is that you're in your Bible every day. Or that you spend time with God's, in God's word. You spend time in your devotions every day. And sometimes when it comes to devotions or reading our Bible or prayer, uh, we say, I'm going to get up and first thing in the morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to read my Bible and spend time with God. Which, by the way, I think is, it's a biblical approach. I can't tell you when the best time of the day to do it is and what this is wrong and that's right. I, I think early in the morning will I seek thee. I think it's a good time of day, mostly because uh, you get up and you, you set your mindset for the rest of the day. I think it's smart. I think it's wise. But a lot of times people say, well, I want to read through my Bible and I want to pray and I want to do my devotions and I want to do it in the morning. And they haven't been in the habit of waking up in the morning and having their devotions. So they say, I'm going to make this, this is going to be, I'm going to do this right. So I'm going to wake up at 4.30 every morning. And I'm going to do my devotions every day. And they haven't even been waking up at all to do their devotions. How likely do you think they are to carry through with that plan? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Just show me. Okay, thumbs down. Okay, good. I'm glad you're, you're listening. That was a helpful encouragement right there. Okay? Very unlikely. See, the night before, I'm always excited about getting up. I'm like, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with the Lord. And then the alarm goes off. Say, you might be focused today, but things are going to come up that make your decision for change more difficult. We need a dose of reality. See, Christ approached the man with truth, not emotion, which I think is what he needed. We need a dose of reality before we begin to take our journey toward change, before we decide to take these steps. And the way that I like to define it is I call them failure points. Stop and consider the failure points before you jump into something. Ask questions like this. What could prevent me from accomplishing this? See, a lot of people are just excited about doing what they're going to be doing, but they don't stop to think, wait a second, but this is going to be something that comes up every time I want to do it. Ask questions like, what could distract me from focusing on this? Ask questions like, what is most likely my area of weakness? This man came to Jesus Christ. He's assuming that he's the exception. He's assuming that he's got all of this taken care of. And it's clear he thought he was going to be the exception. In his mind, he was without weakness. He comes and says, I haven't broken any of these. I'm an exception. I'm the exception to every one of these rules, Lord. 
And as soon as you consider yourself to be the exception, you are setting yourself up for failure. And this is what else we can learn from this young man, is that ignoring the obstacles won't make them go away. Ignoring the obstacles won't make them go away. You have to understand, don't approach change with your head in the sand. Be honest, be realistic, set reasonable expectations, and don't overlook your weaknesses. Some of us hate to be confronted with our weaknesses. We hate to consider the areas that we're not very good at, but if we don't ever confront them head on, if we just ignore our weaknesses or we ignore the obstacles, then we will likely never overcome them. And that's what Jesus Christ is helping this young man do. He's bringing him face to face with that which would prevent him from gaining eternal life. And he's about to help him see the obstacles by pointing out a simple truth. And here's where we come to the main point tonight. This simple truth about change is that one thing was holding him back. One thing. See, verse 21 says, Then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him. I love that, by the way, I love that it says that. That he loved him. He wasn't just bashing him. He didn't just look at him and scoff and, and mock him for his ignorance. No, it says he loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Now, I just have to stop here and say, I've used this principle before, and I love it, but we should love each other enough not to allow each other to stay where we are. We should, see, some people assume that love is tolerance, but true love does not tolerate sin. See, this rich young ruler had one major issue. He was caught up with earthly possessions. He was caught up with the material things. And Matthew 19 said he had very great possessions. Luke 18 says he was very rich. His love for material things was the one thing holding him back from following God. His one thing was material possessions. And when he was confronted with that, after saying, yeah, all of these have I kept from my youth up, that one thing that Christ brought up caused this reaction in verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now understand, Jesus Christ was, I don't know that he was literally saying, you need to go get rid of every single thing that you own if you want to follow me. He was doing that to prove the point. He was doing that to confront the man with the one thing that was holding him back. He told him there's one thing he had to deal with, just one. And that one thing kept him from being a disciple. And folks, I believe it's true for us too. See, change starts with one thing. But on the flip side, one thing can keep us from change. See, we so often, we try to focus on everything and we have a long list of things that we want to change and we're, I'm a renaissance man and I've got all these things, but we end up changing nothing because we don't know how to focus on the one most important thing that will make the biggest difference in everything else. We so often, we try to change everything and change nothing. If we could simply be discerning and focused enough to find the one thing that would make the biggest difference in your life, in our lives, we'd be much more likely to find the change that we're looking for. So my question tonight, as we come down to it, is what's your one thing? What is your one thing? 
What is that one bad habit? What is that one mindset? What is that one lack of discipline? What is that one thing in your life, in your heart, that maybe your family sees or your wife or husband sees or your children see or maybe nobody sees? What's that one thing that most often keeps you from following Christ like you're supposed to? What is the one thing in your life that if you changed would make the single biggest difference for you? What's your one thing? Are you trying to change too many things at once when what you really need is to focus on the one? You'll either give up because it's impossible or you'll simply be average at everything because you're trying to change it all at once. No, start with the one thing that would make the biggest difference. I heard somebody say this about the word focus. They, they called it an acronym and they said, focus is follow one course until successful. Focus, F-O-C-U-S, follow one course until successful. I like that. I wish it was original with me, but it's not. If it was, I would trademark it, okay? But it's not original, but I think it's really good. See, so many try to change everything, and they change nothing. Focus on one until you accomplish it, and then move on to the next. Now, these principles, this principle specifically, it can apply in every area of our lives, physically, you know, a lot of times people are saying, okay, I need to lose weight and I haven't been dieting and I haven't been uh, do, being very good. That's what we call it. That's how we justify it. I haven't been very good. And what, we've been, what we're trying to say is I've been gluttonous since, for the last month since Thanksgiving. Oh, change one thing. Physically speaking, no, don't just change everything. Don't empty out your refrigerator and, and go vegan if you've never tried it before. No, uh, change one thing. Rather than eating, say, okay, I, I want to get better. I want to eat better. I want to have a better diet. I want to I get in better shape. So what's one thing I can change? Well, maybe your one thing is I'm not going to eat after 6 o'clock. Maybe your one thing is uh, I'm going to cut out this except for one day. I'm not going to have sweets except for um, Monday through Saturday. No, just kidding. I'm going to cut out sweets except for this one night. In this one night, I can have sweets. Now, I know these are silly and they're, they're hard, but, but that's easier than, I mean, empty out my refrigerator and I'm going to start raising free-range chickens and without, that are antibiotic-free in my backyard and that will be my, oh, the only thing I ever eat. I don't even know what free-range chickens are, okay? I just know antibiotics are bad unless you're sick and then they help you. I don't understand that. So physically, don't just change everything. Change one thing. Uh, at work, you say, I, I want to become the CEO at my work. Okay, well, that's the, you need some steps to get there. No, don't think about that way. Think about it like, well, what's one area I need to improve in? What one skill could I learn in the next couple months that would help me in the future? And with your family, uh, don't just change everything and overhaul everything and, and throw everything at your kids all at once. No, make one change to your schedule. Maybe add family devotions a couple times a week. Maybe say, after this time, the TV will not be on, or we don't turn the TV on until this has been accomplished. One change. Maybe in your marriage, do one helpful thing differently. Uh, maybe a date night, or, I mean, that, I don't know, that doesn't usually work for us. We always say, date night, you know, we'll do this, and, and then it doesn't happen. But maybe that's the one thing that you and your wife need, man. 
And I don't really want to say this because I'm going to get us all in trouble, but maybe say twice, and, twice a week I'm going to help after supper. I'm going to help clean up the, you know, don't do that. Never mind, we'll think of something else. Change one thing. One thing. Maybe in your finances, and rather than um, cutting everything out and, and going just, I mean, Amish, change one thing, adjust spending in one area. Cut out, cut out Dr. Pet, well, maybe not that one either. Cut out something. Adjust, I'm just saying, so cut one spending in one area rather than doing everything. And this applies in every area, but obviously the most important tonight is our spiritual lives. See, what one adjustment in your life would make the biggest difference for you, spiritually speaking? Maybe, it's more, maybe it is more consistent Bible reading. Um, it would be silly for us to think that, you can, that I can eat once or twice a week and I'm going to have all the energy I need. So why, spiritually speaking, do we think if I eat spiritually once or twice a week, that's all I need? It makes no sense. Maybe it's a regular prayer life. And I know for me, that's, that's the one I really am trying to improve and asking God to help me with in my prayer life. I want to make it more regular. I want to make it more consistent. I want to make it more passionate. I'd love to see it be more effective. Maybe for you, it's faithfulness to services. And I don't make an apology for this. I think every member of Eastside Baptist Church ought to be at every single service we have. And I know that sounds like it's a you know, that's over the top, and maybe that's asking too much of people in this culture. But listen, you want to stand out as a disciple? You will make God's house a priority. You just will. And in the day and age in which we are living, in Hebrews 10, when people are forsaking the assembling of themselves, as the manner of some is, then we ought to be so much the more here every time the doors are open. Maybe that's your one thing. Maybe your one thing is more involvement in serving. And, and we have people that do a lot of things and they're spread thin. And then we also have some that just are, for the most part, sitting in services. And I'm thankful that they're sitting. But at some point, we have to stand and serve. We have to get involved. Maybe your one thing is in your witnessing to other people. And you say, I, I come across people every day, or I've got people at work that, have, that are obviously not saved, and they need to hear the gospel, or my neighbors, I've never invited them to church, and maybe your one thing is that you will have a zeal to tell others about Jesus Christ because of what he's done in your life. Maybe that's your one thing. Maybe it's a spiritual characteristic, and the one thing that would make the biggest difference for you is that you would, by God's grace, that, he, that you would trust him to help you with your anger problem. It's amazing to me how often I hear that. In homes, in families, in marriages with each other, how anger seems to kind of be the characteristic that comes up all the time. And maybe that one thing in your life that would help every area of your life at work, at home, with your family, with your spouse, uh, here at church, is that you ask God with all of your heart that he would help you to overcome your anger problem. Maybe it's a matter of patience. Maybe it's the language that you use. It's some bad habit. What one thing has kept you from progressing spiritually this last year? I mean, look back, think back to January 1st, 2019. It's one year ago. Is there any noticeable change in your spiritual life? 
Are you noticeably different? Has there been noticeable growth in the last 12 months? What one thing will keep you then looking ahead for a year, the next 12 months, what one thing will keep you from becoming what you ought to be spiritually in the next 12 months? Look ahead to, June, to January 1st, 2021. If you don't change anything, will there be noticeable growth in your life over the next year? If you were to change one thing, which would contribute to the most growth in the next 12 months? Just start with one thing. You say, well, change is hard. It seems really hard. And I understand it. I mean, it is hard. But Christ dealt with that too. Look down in verse 23. Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. Okay, So what he just said kind of blew their minds. They were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith, basically saith the same thing unto them. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And I've heard a lot of things about the camels, the camel going through the needle's eye, but the fact to me that the disciples were astonished beyond measure means in their minds they didn't think that he was they were thinking he's saying it's not possible they were astonished beyond measure and they're looking around like what is he saying he who then can be saved if it's more possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle they're astonished beyond measure so there's not much hope given by christ and they the disciples take note and they're like what's what it's not possible then but I want you to look at verse 27. Here's Christ's answer. And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And here's what he's just taught them is that for this rich young ruler, for him to trust in himself or to trust in riches to get him to heaven, it's absolutely impossible. He can't do it. But with God, all things are possible. And if that rich young ruler would have simply placed aside his riches, that one thing, and looked to Jesus Christ for salvation, he could have been saved too, because with God all things are possible. See, as difficult as it seems and as daunting as change is, and as impossible as it feels, there's no single change that God can't give you the grace and strength to make. And some of you tonight, you've said, yeah, if I look back last year, yeah, that one thing was there then. If I go back two years, that one thing was there then too. If I would go back three years and four years and five years and six years and 10 and 20 and 30, that one thing has always been there. It always keeps me from being what I'm supposed to be. Every year, that one thing is the one thing that I really want to change, but I'm to the point where I'm thinking it's not even possible to change. But listen, if it is possible for a camel to go through a needle's eye, then God can work this out. He can give you the strength and he can give you the help and he can make the change in you if you would simply trust an, a God to do the impossible things. Not only is it possible, 
But when the change comes from a heart that wants to move closer to God, look at the outcome. Verse 28. Then Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. What, do you, what is he saying there? Well, he's saying what we think it, it, that we're losing in the process will be restored to us a hundredfold, spiritually and eternally. See, not only does God make change possible, but he also makes it worth it. If you have a heart to serve Christ more or grow closer to your father or commit to him more or be more faithful or be more active here at church, he will give you both the grace and power to accomplish it and he'll make it worth your while. James 4.8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. In that same passage, it says, God resisted the proud but giveth grace to the humble. If we take humble steps toward God for change, he wants to, uh, to meet us with grace. He wants to meet us with his strength. You just have to be willing, folks, tonight. Here it comes down to. You just have to be willing to start with one thing. That one thing. That one thing that will make the biggest spiritual difference in your life. If it's church involvement, it's, if it's waking up earlier, if it's getting involved in a ministry... If it's uh, for some man in here, and I'm just going to get down to where we live. For some man in here, maybe it's you need to get rid of that smartphone. And you need to be more accountable. Because it's easy in our day and age, when you have a smartphone, you've got, I mean, right in your hands, men. And maybe that one thing that's keeping you from what you should be doing is the fact that you can browse the internet on your phone. Maybe that's your one thing. For some lady in here, maybe your one thing is, is that you need help to deal with bitterness. And you need to forgive somebody. For some teenager in here, maybe it's that you need to humble yourself before your parents. And you've been so full of pride and you haven't listened and you've done your own thing. And you'd be surprised how one thing, humbling yourself before your parents, would change your relationship with them. Maybe for some seasoned saint in here, a senior saint, and your role in life in church has changed, and you just need to embrace the role that you have, and maybe it's more time in prayer for your church family and the people that you love. Whatever it is, you need more than just excitement. You can't overlook the obstacles, and you need to focus on one thing, just one. You say, well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, Choose the one thing that makes the biggest difference. That's obvious. But second, set up specific details to see it accomplished. See, a lot of people say, well, I need to read my Bible more. But they never say, I will read my Bible here, at this place, at this time, uh, every day in this location. They never have a where, they never have a when, they never have a how. If you're going to change in this one thing then it's time for it to, to not just say, yes, I'm going to do this, but to get specific with it. So choose the one thing and then get specific. And then third, envision your life next year if you'll actually do it. Just dream. It's okay to dream. 
It's okay to think, if I was to do this every day for the next year, here's what God could have me in one year, in 12 months. And then fourth, last, once the Lord allows you to have victory over that one thing, move on to the next one thing. Rather than just tackle it all at once, one thing at a time. And you say, well, that just sounds like self-help. Well, maybe, but that's what Jesus Christ told this rich young ruler. He said, this one thing thou lackest. Start with one thing, and you'll be surprised if you'll just give focus and attention to that one thing this year. When you finally have victory in it, and you move on to the next one thing, you'll be surprised in a year how many one things God has given you victory over. Maybe it's time for us to focus on one thing. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.